That Palmer, private detective of London speaking, confirm. Yes. You have received a key and 200 pounds, confirm. Who is this? This is episode 343, entitled Billion Dollar Brain, and it follows uh, on the heels of last week's entitled Strange Conflict, and it has to do with truth, truth in the inward being, as St. Paul refers to it. And the opening music was an excerpt from uh, Richard Rodney Bennett's score for the 1967 iffy, not very good, but alluring movie entitled Billion Dollar Brain. The score is absolutely first class, and what you've heard is an electrifying, uh, what we today would sort of try to pigeonhole as a sort of late 60s electronic um, um, prelude, but it's just exciting and uh, mesmerizing and has a sort of Michel Legrand feel to it, but it's by an English composer, and the movie was uh, a very distinctly left-wing, sort of never-Trump kind of sensibility uh, of uh, a plot that the Russians benignly discover in the movie 
the movie being directed by the notorious but very gifted, obviously, Ken Russell, a plot discovered by the Russians that uh, in which um, evangelical Christians in Texas, funded by one particular rather insane uh, religious right-wing fanatic, are preparing to conquer the world, and it's how they are frustrated and finally completely defeated in a masterful but um, predictable uh, morass of an ice uh, storm like Alexander Nevsky. And um, it's a mesmerizing movie with very strong narrative agenda and yet brilliant music. But the main thing for us as we were kids watching it when we were 15 and 16 was because of Francoise Dorléac, who plays the... Um, the female lead, obviously, and she was the sister of Catherine Deneuve, and we were just absolutely head over heels in love with her. Everything she touched, Francoise Dorliac, we would go to the art theater and watch it from age 12 on. She was so beautiful and so alluring uh, and wonderful to us, and um, she died like like a month after finishing Billion Dollar Brain in a horrific car crash uh, near Nice in France. And we were just, we went into total mourning. I mean, it was almost as bad as when Boris Karloff died. But I uh, wanted to give you the music because it sort of ties into the kind of inner life of a person. It's It touches an inward note. Um, I can't possibly... Um, uh, imitate it, but it is, um, there's something very sort of gets under your skin about that uh, amazing theme that we just heard. And I want to talk a little bit more about the truth. I was struck by a passage in the mocking cast with David Zoll and Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman from about two years ago in which they were talking about preparing for death and uh, someone, either they themselves or someone they quoted, I think it was one of them, said, the thing you want to be most uh, thinking about, what is the one thing you haven't said? Is there anything you haven't said? Because at that point, when you're getting ready to die, you need to say, you need to say, to the extent that you know it, and that was in the podcast statement, to the extent that you are aware of it, you need to be able to have out with the thing that's most on your mind and heart, which, as I said before, is usually hidden. It's not hidden out of um, a bad spirit or hidden out of a deliberate desire to uh, pull the wool over people's eyes. It gets to be that way, perhaps, or it can be that way and certainly is used that way, or or perhaps it becomes so habitual that you just never, never say the truth. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about a kleptomaniac or a, someone who's um, really psychotic in some kind of deceit, but um, the average person, for very good reasons of his or her own, chooses not to say what they're really thinking for fear of being judged or condemned or stressed by another person or not understood and given advice to and all the things, so they hide it. And then over the years, you become habituated and you start, you, you actually can get to a point, um, please believe me on this, when you, when you almost... Uh, Never say what's really on your mind. Um, it's very interesting. And, and the greatest joy is when, and it often happens at the end, with a good minister, and this is why the ministry is so important. The ordained parish ministry is such an invaluable resource for the human race because there comes a time when you, you, you simply must um, declare yourself uh, before man and God because you will, before God, inevitably have to be who you really are. And this is where Tullian's ministry and Stacy's ministry comes with astonishing uh, 
power that uh, we must, as best as we possibly can, be in touch with the whole truth. Let me give you an example of... Uh, of this, uh, of the way that um, sort of an unconscious um, drive that is sort of hidden, um, not stated, but becomes the the uh, governing force of a human life. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to um, to read from a passage in Jung. Uh, I think it's from a kind of uh, senior seminar he was teaching. Um, when he uh, had American students and English students and people from all over the world, including Philip Wiley, I might add, and people that you've heard of and know. And um, these were some notes that were taken at one of his seminars that I keep uh, where I can always consult them. It's about the anima and the animus. Please don't uh, get upset if this talks about men and women, quay men and women. This is Jung speaking in the uh, sort of mid-20s. And uh, he's speaking simply of commenting on various uh, potential case histories that they're discussing in this seminar. He's talking about uh, women who are unconsciously driven to uh, hook up or connect with a certain kind of man that if they were in their right mind, they never would, and vice versa, men who are driven to connect and hook up with a certain kind of woman who, if they were in their right mind, never would. But they're, the, the truth is that they're, they're, they're driven, guided, and impelled by uh, internal uh, forces that are beyond their control. And this is extremely... Um, extremely damaging to it's very this, this is in the low anthropology david Zoll's brilliant book this is in the low anthropology department but if you don't understand this this is in just one area of life there are many many others but if you don't understand this you'll be caught when things go south and especially when you are preparing you can't help yourself your your body is giving out and you're dying what are you going to say uh, who are you you have to it has to come out i confess to use the hitchcock montgomery Clift uh, picture that this has to happen for any kind of resolution and peace at the moment of departure from the the body when the soul leaves and this is uh, just some comments that he makes about men and women if we try to make clear to such a woman for instance that the man she wants to marry has been divorced three times and she is not likely to be very happy as his fourth wife she just remains animus Possessed. He means possessed by a part of herself that is drawn to the male psyche in a negative sense. She just remains animus, possessed. She is sure she is right because she believes she is an exception. She thinks she can exert her will upon life, and so she runs headlong to disaster. For a woman, the animus is an image with a natural aim. She wants marriage, a child, and a home. Now, a man takes a more religious attitude to this. Now, he's going to talk a little bit about the anima, the female archetype that exists inside of most men, whether they know it or want it or not, but they act on it. A man motivates a given situation in a very different way from the woman on whom he has projected his anima. A woman usually experiences the romantic situation differently. A man frequently has a beautiful picture of his anima, that's the female part of him, which is connecting with what he believes is the core female part of the person he is attracted to. A man frequently has a beautiful picture of his anima, but if the woman on whom he has projected his anima spoke and revealed her true motivation, a very different picture might appear. The man thinks she is heavenly. 
a ravishing mother of God, because he is so fascinated and a little intoxicated. But he has not completely grasped the image of the woman, if he has not also seen her icy darkness, her plots, her cruelty, her cold blood, and her capacity for robbery by stealth. We cannot deliberately sin. This is extraordinary sentence. We cannot deliberately sin. We have to be in love in order to sin. The anima is the handmaiden of the male principle, and the animus must not be allowed to be a possessive demon, but must be taken in hand by the woman. To a man, the anima is the mother of God who gives birth to the divine child. To a woman, the animus is the Holy Spirit, the procreator. Finally, primeval history is the story of the beginning of consciousness by differentiation from these archetypes. Oh my gosh. Well, you might as well just commit suicide right off the bat, male or female. I mean, you know, I I used to say, we used to say blondes have more fun and I would inevitably see oneself and included me at one point um, drawn to the blonde just by definition. I mean, it's just a fact. It's not something you decide to do. I was, you know, it's an unconscious thing and frequently we would, Mary and I would observe in uh, women in our parish especially younger, lovely single women who would come to Grace Church in particular in New York City, um, they would always seem to be attracted to yucky guys. I mean, guys who would only hurt them. We could see it a mile away, a wonderful, lovely person, woman, uh, being attracted to a dreadful, selfish, petulant, angry man and um, who would inevitably hurt them. And we called it the crumb syndrome, uh, C-R-U-M-B. Why would these wonderful women we knew... Christian women be attracted to crumbs, guys, mean guys. And why were so many of the uh, men not seeing the virtue of these wonderful women right in front of them and then sort of go after, inevitably, some kind of blonde? I mean, it happens in The Godfather, too, if you've seen that movie, in a very vivid manner. But um, what... I'm uh, trying to talk about, and uh, it was stirred in me uh, by rehearing of Richard Rodney Bennett's score to Billion Dollar Brain, that um, there are so many um, levels within. Let me say a little bit more about this. There's the actual conversation you have, which is basically, if you live in certain parts of the world, it's about the weather. England was known, every single movie, English movie from the 40s and 50s, when two people who were laden with important agendas, one for the other, or one about another of a third person, or have something important to say, inevitably the conversation is about the weather. Oh, it's been raining a lot. Yeah, but I think it's going to get da-da-da-da-da-da. I know where I'm going, which is one of the great, great movies. It's entirely about the weather, while it is also wholly about the romantic struggles of uh, two uh, conflicted people who are perfect for one another, and it takes disaster on two fronts for them to understand that and to finally end up by the sheer providence of God. I know where I'm going, 1947, but so much of the talk is about the weather. I mean, you have to see it to believe it, but it's true if you've been in England or if you've been in California, for that matter, or here, you know, in... in, uh, uh, in, in southern New England. Weather, weather, weather. And uh, then there's the second thing. There's what you're really thinking about. 
you know, what I'm really thinking about is how are we going to get through this particular circumstance or what are we going to do later today or when will we get home after the meeting or what if it snows and the roads are icy and you can't see the the median or uh, how are we going to handle this particular person's Christmas present or what if uh, he or she is upset with us because of that and this <laughs> you you that's the second thing and um and that you can talk about you often talk about that with the person you love or with whom you live or your children you can even share even a good friend you can share some anxieties you have about the immediate future then there's the third area which is sort of the deeper issues um you know do i really love him can i really stand another month dealing with this difficult, difficult child who lives at home and uh, on the one hand needs my love and my money but won't take anything I say seriously and has a clear animus against me in this or that or a grudge against me. How can I possibly find fulfillment in the job I'm I'm, I'm, I'm uh, doing and not doing well uh, when I really would much rather be doing that but that's been ruled out by circumstances or what in the world, is there any hope for me? <laughs> but that's sort of the third level and that's the real, that's the real level. But then there's the fourth level. And the fourth level is a level which is evoked in Billion Dollar Brain. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd, I'd like to kill him. <laughs> I, I, there are times when I, I think I'm just going to absolutely scream or, oh, I am just dying to, to try fentanyl. I mean, they're all talking about it, and I know it killed 120,000 people in this country last year or something like that, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I, I can imagine maybe that would be the answer to my blues. You know, extinction coupled with a kind of high and um, an emotional... And a, just a felt uh, uh, in, increase in joy, um, or uh, you know, I am just so lonely. I've been lonely too long, you know. Um, the young rascals. I just can't stand it. Uh, people who are suicidal, people who are homicidal, people who are who are homicidal but will never do anything about it, or suicidal but who will never do about it. I mean, this is the deepest, deepest levels. And you get this occasionally in one's dreams or in one's daydreams, sitting in Die Hall 60, 70, 60 years ago in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill taking introductory German, and suddenly I see the heads, the decapitated heads of all of my teachers. I had about six teachers that uh, first year in uh, college, and uh, the decapitated heads are strung around the kind of... um, uh, the paneling, the upper paneling of the room, and they're all bleeding heads of my teachers. And what is that? I had that waking, I couldn't believe it. Am I actually having those thoughts, the, such violent thoughts? Well, now, you know, this is what Freudian and Jungian psychology is hope to, hoping to, to get to, but it's there. And it needs to be dealt with the thief on the cross. And when you're when you're with with God, uh, when you're facing the ultimate, I don't want to say judge as much as real mirror, the real mirror of your life, your feelings, your hearts. These things will be there too. The conscious actions, the giving of Christmas gifts, who you really want to bless, or you've just or out of guilt sometimes. 
um, or uh, a gift certificate or, a, or an action that you did really to right a wrong, but actually to sort of make up for something you'd done wrong. All that's fine, but what will also come out is the inward motives. Jesus was huge on inward motives. You know this. He, he was much more interested. People say today, oh, it's what you say or your actions. It's not what you meant to do. You're judged purely on the basis of your action, and Jesus completely contravened that. He said you're judged on the basis of what you wanted, of what your motive was, and you may have wanted someone's good, but your action was not what it might have been, but at least you really did deep down love them or seek to love them or want to be generous and get out of yourself. You were driven to love that person, even though it failed or it wasn't received or even rejected. And, and those uh, drives, those images, those pictures, what Scrooge is about, it's what Christmas Carol is about, it's what life is about, it's what ultimacy is about. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today. So that's really all I wanted to say. I wanted to talk about the four levels of truth-telling. I wanted to say that uh, such a simple thing as the 1967 title um, music for Billion Dollar Brain got me sort of thinking at the third and hopefully the fourth level. I wanted to quote um, Jung because he was simply saying, if you can, if you can li- handle his gender differentiation, and that, let's just call that Jung. I happen to agree with it, but let's just call that Jung. But don't worry about that so much as the irrational basis of decisions, especially when they're made with love, sex, romance, libido, hope, uh, and ultimate concern for fulfillment and joy and uh, connection when those decisions are made irrationally, you really learn about the human heart at a deep level. And so uh, that's all I wanted to say. And we close today at this sort of mid-Christmas preparation podcast. I've gotten a little bit of a new burst of energy with um, uh, Low Straight Jackets and Nick Lowe, but primarily, as you will see, and you'll recognize the theme, brilliant, especially Low Straight Jackets always goes to the fourth level at the end of the track. So listen, the first two thirds are usually a slightly, you know, a a rock version of a traditional or normal theme, and then at the very end they go wild, and the same goes in a wonderful way for Linus and Lucy. Love you. I'm going to disappear, ladies and gentlemen, but don't go away. Leave you in the capable hands of Law Straight Jackets. (laughs) 